Father, as we turn now to the Scriptures, we pray for the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit. Help us to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest, and all for Jesus' sake. Amen. Please be seated. Please turn with me to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. We will take a break from this series on Peter for some Advent sermons, and then I want to return just for a few weeks to finish off uh, the life of Peter, and then we'll go to the Psalms. Now, let me take this opportunity to thank uh, the ladies who are in here um, on Friday, I think, maybe Thursday, Thursday or Friday, uh, to decorate uh, our sanctuary. What a magnificent job you've done. Acts chapter 4. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we were being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by Him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a noble sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. But when they had further threatened them, 
They let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Well, so far, God's holy and inerrant word. Well, some of you uh, will remember that we preached, or at least I preached on this passage uh, back at the beginning of uh, the lockdown when we did a little series called Locked Up With Nowhere To Go. And I trust that this is a different sermon, at least I prepared it uh, differently, but maybe I can just cite uh, Paul in Philippians 3 for me to write the same things to you. Uh, is no trouble to me, but it is safe to you. And maybe, uh, maybe some repetition uh, is in order. Well, let me begin. I've been reading this week Alexander Solzhenitsyn and uh, the, the Gulag Archipelago, one of his great uh, triumphs. He fought, uh, as you know, in the Second World War in uh, Russia with the Red Army, and uh, at the end of the war, uh, wrote to a friend a private letter in which he criticized Stalin. And uh, somebody snitched on him, and he was imprisoned. He was sent to the forced labor camp uh, in Siberia for eight years, wrote about it, wrote about the dire and horrid conditions in which these men were forced to work in sub-zero uh, temperatures. He wrote in the Gulag, I turn back to the years of my imprisonment and say, sometimes to the astonishment of those about me, bless you, prison. I have served enough time there. I nourished my soul there. And I say without hesitation, bless you, prison, for having been in my life. Well, I imagine that that sentiment is one that would have been held by Peter and John. They weren't in prison for eight years. They were in prison for one night. Uh, and, uh, but but something, something about this trial grew them. Uh, and we'll see in a moment uh, how it grew them. Uh, Peter and John have just uh, healed by the power of the Holy Spirit this cripple who's uh, over 40 years old. He had been brought to the outer precincts of the temple every day to beg for alms. And Peter had said to him, A silver and gold have I none, but what I have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. And he did just that. And uh, a crowd now has gathered uh, in the evening uh, of that day, and uh, the temple guards, uh, the Roman Empire allowed the Jews an appreciable amount of freedom uh, in the temple. Uh, the temple was policed by, its, by Jewish policemen, temple policemen, and a temple guard has come to arrest. You'll remember in the arrest of Jesus, something similar. The, the arresting officers were, were Jewish officers, 
uh, and, and a measure of jurisdiction uh, uh, over the temple. The Roman soldiers, of course, couldn't enter the temple. They could only go as far as the court of the Gentiles. And so they, they built the great uh, uh, structure to house soldiers at the very corner of the temple, high enough that they could look down uh, inside the temple to, to see what was going on. They've come to arrest Peter and John. There would have been a cell somewhere in the outer precincts of the temple wall. And it's the next morning when they are brought now before uh, scribes and, and the entire chief priest's uh, family, and they're being interrogated. They're being interrogated about how it was that this man was healed, and by what power and in whose name was he healed. And I want us to see several things about Peter's response here. First of all, the description that Luke gives in verse 8, that Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. The book of Acts begins with a reference to the filling of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And the book of Acts ends in chapter 28 with another description of the filling of the Holy Spirit. This time, uh, it's in the case of the Apostle Paul. So, like two bookends, uh, the growth and development of the early Christian um, church in the book of Acts it is bookended by this expression, being filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is Christ's representative agent. He is the comforter. He's the paraclete. He's the advocate, the other advocate that Jesus promises in the upper room. He's the third person of the Trinity who indwells us. We, every Christian has the Holy Spirit. We don't have a quarter of the Spirit or half the Spirit. We have Him, the Spirit. He indwells us. He strengthens us. He nourishes us, gifts us. He helps us understand the, the Word of God. He gives us courage in moments of trial. I think that's what's happening here. This is a tense moment for Peter and John. They're going to have to give an account of themselves. And there's a possibility that they could be further punished and further incarcerated. They need to say things with, with a certain measure of boldness and, and courage. And Luke wants you to understand that this isn't something that is entirely innate to, to the Apostle Peter. What is happening here, the courage that is being demonstrated here is the result of the filling of the Holy Spirit. You find yourself in difficulty. You find yourself in a tight spot. You find yourself facing a trial. You find yourself up against an obstacle. You're looking for guidance. You're looking for direction. Perhaps you're looking for, for, for courage. You're looking for strength. You're, you're going to have to say some hard things. Perhaps it's one of those family get-togethers where some, some hard truths need to be ironed out. Perhaps it's in a difficult situation in the office and somebody's you know, it's, it's one of those periods, 2020, everybody's got an opinion. And everybody's got an opinion that you want, they want you to know. 
and every opinion is right. And uh, maybe you're facing one of those moments in the office, and uh, you've been putting it off, and you're wondering, how will I do this? Will I have the courage? Well, God will help you. The Holy Spirit will help you. You ask, uh, this is a descriptive, not a prescriptive here. This is Luke describing something, but he could equally have made it as uh, Paul does in Ephesians 5, be filled with the Spirit. That's a prescription. Pray for the ministry of the Holy Spirit in your life to fill you, to overflowing, to give you a greater love for the Lord Jesus. That's the principal work of the Holy Spirit, to flood light the ministry of the Lord Jesus. He doesn't speak about Himself. He draws attention to Jesus, just like, and I've used this illustration before, but just like floodlighting outside this church. Somebody sent me a picture of the church a few weeks ago. It was taken in the evening, beautiful evening. The lights were on the church. It was magnificent, showing forth the Gothic architecture of this fabulous building here in the heart of the city. And uh, no one would say, you know, are those LED lights or are they halogen bulbs or what are they? No, they're hidden behind bushes, and people don't come and inspect behind the bushes as to what the lamp is. They're, they're looking at the building. And, and that's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He draws attention not to himself, but to Jesus. And, and here, that's precisely what is, what is happening. He's drawing attention to Jesus. He's helping Peter draw attention to Jesus. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. Then secondly, and I'm looking now at the second half of verse 8 through verse 12, and it's the sermon that Peter preaches. It's a summary of a sermon is what I imagine. It's the third one that we have from the Apostle Peter. And he's been asked about what power has been involved in the healing of this cripple? What, what name was invoked in, in his healing? What does Peter do? Well, the first thing I want us to see is that he preaches the same message as he had preached the day before, the one that had gotten him, gotten him into trouble in the first place. He doesn't change his tune. It would be altogether possible and altogether explainable if Peter were now to tone things down a bit, you could imagine a little private conversation with John. We'd, we'd better tone things down because we might get into more trouble. We need to get out of this. Maybe we can preach about Jesus somewhere else. Maybe we can leave the, 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 the city precincts and do it there. But no, Peter preaches the same message, the same message about Christ. There's something almost defiant about him. There's something almost stubborn about him in a good sense, in a, in, a, in a right and proper sense. You notice what he does? He quotes from Psalm 118. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. It's talking about Jesus. Psalm 118, Psalms 113 to 118 are the Psalms that were used during Passover. They would have sung Psalm 118 in the upper room on the night on which Jesus was betrayed, the night of Passover. They would have sung Psalm 118. Peter quotes it in his first epistle. It's on his mind. Why is it on his mind? What's so special about Psalm 118? Well, the answer is clear. It's, it's the reference to stones. Peter is, is rocky. 
on this rock I will build my church. I don't think, I don't think a day went by that Peter didn't look at a piece of architecture and, and, and saw a stone and was reminded of what Jesus had said to him. There's a man sitting up here who can talk about bricks for hours. I think Peter could talk about stones all day long because they reminded him of the call that Jesus had given to him. Jesus has become the chief cornerstone. They had thrown this stone away. But God had made him the chief cornerstone of the building that he is erecting, and that building, of course, is the church. But stand back a little and ask yourself a, a, a bigger question. How should we read the Old Testament? We could spend a great deal of time trying to answer that question. The Old Testament is, on one level, not an easy book to read. Actually, it's 39 books to read and 39 different books to read. But here's, here's one answer. You read the Old Testament looking for Jesus. Peter is quoting from a psalm, Psalm 118. But what he sees in the psalm is a promise of the Messiah. What he sees in the psalm is Jesus. You remember on the Emmaus Road when uh, those two forlorn disciples, uh, thinking that Jesus was dead and their hope was, was vanquished, and, and, and Jesus comes alongside them, and, and beginning with Moses and in all of the prophets, He expounded to them the things concerning Himself. I wouldn't be a bit surprised if Psalm 118 was one of those passages that Jesus alluded to, to those two disciples. But what was Jesus doing? He was reading the Old Testament, looking for Jesus, looking for Himself. That's a way to understand the Old Testament, beginning with Genesis 3.15, that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. Well, he was filled with the Spirit. He proclaimed the same message. And then thirdly, the emphasis that Peter gives uh, to the resurrection. You see it there in verse 10, whom God raised from the dead. The resurrection, it changed everything. They had crucified Jesus. A spear was thrust in his side to prove that he was dead. They had taken him down. They would put him in a tomb for three days. And then on that Easter morning, when the women come to embalm the body with all of the spices, the stone is rolled away. An angel says, he is not here, he is risen. And later they would see him. And Mary Magdalene would, would, would come, and, and, and she'd look inside, and, and there's, there's nothing there except for the grave clothes. And then from inside, looking outside, there's, there's somebody standing perhaps in the early morning light of dawn, and, and she, can't, she can't see his face, perhaps. And she thinks he's the gardener. And he was the gardener. He had come to restore Eden. He had come to make everything new. Jesus was risen from the dead. Peter had seen Him. Five hundred saw Him all at 
once up in Galilee. You remember what Paul says to us in 1 Corinthians 15 about the resurrection, among many other things that he says about the resurrection. But the first thing that he says is that the resurrection of Jesus is the template of our resurrection. That His bodily resurrection is a template for our bodily resurrection. There is coming a day when Jesus will come again, and those who are alive will be caught up to meet Him in the air, and, and those who are dead will be raised from their graves. There's going to be a, a glorious morning here in this churchyard when the dead will be raised up. Now, this, this doctrine of the resurrection, it got the Sadducees and the ruling authorities all bent out of shape. First of all, the Sadducees didn't believe in a resurrection. So, so they, they, they couldn't understand this message at all because they didn't believe in a physical resurrection. And then there were others there, temple authorities. Some of them believed that the blessings that Peter is talking about belong not now, but at the end of the age. They, they, were, they were teaching false doctrine. They were teaching false hopes. That's what's got them so upset. What does Peter do? You notice in uh, verse 12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. He preaches the exclusivity of Christ. That's a hard doctrine, that you cannot be saved apart from faith alone in Christ alone, that Hinduism uh, will not save you, that Buddhism will not save you, that Islam will not save you. Only Jesus can save. He and He alone. Now, this raises all kinds of uh, problems for people. People say this isn't fair. What about those who have never heard? The only exception, my friend, uh, that our tradition here in, in the ARP, the Westminster um, tradition, Westminster Confession, makes two provisions. One, for infants who die in infancy. Remember, this is a 17th century document. The Westminster Confession was written in 1645. John Owen, who lived just a few years later, had 11 children. Ten of them died in infancy. It was an age in which many, many, many children died in infancy. I want to say to you, mothers especially, who've lost children in infancy, miscarriages. I firmly and absolutely believe, as did the Westminster divines, I think, to a man believed that children who died in infancy are saved. C.S. Lewis says, there is no biblical support for it, no textual support for it. C.S. Lewis says um, that he fully expects in heaven that mothers will see their children as infants and raise them into adulthood. I don't know if that's true. I want to believe it's true. I think it's true. It would be perfectly cognizant if it were true. It would be true to the heart of God's own self-revelation in Scripture that that were true. The other exception that the Westminster Confession makes 
is um, for those whose mental capacities are, are incapable of understanding the gospel. And th those are the two exceptions that uh, Reformed theologians have made to the uh, claim of exclusivity here. This is a doctrine that's hard to preach in our cancel culture, for sure. But unless you believe on the Lord Jesus, you cannot be saved. There are evangelicals, so-called evangelicals, who have written in the last decade or so very uh, popular books suggesting uh, that this doctrine isn't true. Uh, one of them was called Love Wins. You can imagine the trajectory of thought that in the end God relents of His wrath and love wins over, and, and in the end everybody is saved. My dear friend, the Bible knows nothing of it. The Bible from beginning to end preaches an exclusivity as far as the method of salvation is concerned. And if you are not a Christian this morning, you're not among those who have never heard. Whatever the answer to that particular issue may be, that's not your problem. Your problem is that you've heard the gospel. You've heard it many times. You've heard about Jesus many times. And you've, you've, you've put it off. You, you said when you were a teenager, I'll, I'll, I'll put my trust in Him after I've been through college. And college came and went. You said, I'll put my trust in Jesus when we had a family. Well, the family is here. Where are you this morning? Read this verse over to yourself this afternoon. There is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given amongst men whereby we must be saved. Well, you notice in verse 13 something else. To preach that message of exclusivity. You understand that in preaching that message, he was ruling out many of the Jews that were standing before him because they didn't trust in Jesus. They didn't believe that he was the Messiah. It took great courage. You notice the word in verse 13, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John. Boldness, parousia in Greek. Every time that word is used in the Acts of the Apostles, it is always used in the context of speaking. Speaking with boldness, speaking with courage. You see what they thought? The rulers, they perceived that they were uneducated common men. You know, they're from the north, they're from Galilee. They didn't have the rabbinical education that Jews had in Jerusalem. If you lived in Jerusalem, you, you could go to the rabbinical schools. It would guarantee you certain jobs and certain positions. These are fishermen. Now, my dear friend, they may not have gone to rabbinical schools. Peter for sure went to some school. Try reading Second Peter. Second Peter is so difficult in Greek, it's, it's probably one of the most difficult letters in the New Testament to translate. And, and for that reason, many scholars doubt that Peter wrote it, simply on those grounds alone. 
Where did Peter learn to write? Where did he learn to read and understand the Old Testament? Well, they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Yes, that's exactly what, what was the case. They had, been with Je- they had been in school for three years with Jesus. Can you imagine how much better that would be than a rabbinical school? Can you imagine the depth of knowledge and insight? You've been three years side by side with Jesus. You've heard Jesus expound the Old Testament thousands of times. There's no doubt that much of what Peter is, is, is preaching and teaching echoes the very words of Jesus. And they did it with boldness, with boldness. Jesus taught them how to read the Bible. Jesus taught them what is, what is essential, what is primary. F.F. F. Bruce, I think I mentioned him last week, F.F. F. Bruce says that this word, parousia for boldness, can be translated freedom of speech. Freedom of speech. Well, we've been talking about freedom of speech for the last nine months. We've been talking about the First Amendment. What does that mean? In, in matters where the state uh, is, is interfering uh, with uh, religious issues, the, the, the right to speak what I believe, the right to practice my faith in the way that it ought to be practiced, well, I'm not going there. That's for another time. But you understand the principle that's before us here. Peter and John are being told not to preach or teach in the name of Jesus. And when, when human authorities, in this case religious authorities, when human authorities ask you to do something that God specifically forbids… I'm not talking about things indifferent. I'm talking about things that God specifically forbids. You have no choice in the matter. You must obey God rather than men. That's Peter's response. We cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. They're being threatened. They were threatened. There's the possibility of punishment. There's the possibility of incarceration. The future of the church is at stake. You could imagine Peter and John making a few compromises to get them out of this situation to go somewhere else. But no, there was no compromise. When it comes to uh, the matter of salvation, when it comes to the identity of the Lord Jesus, when it comes to, to, to the call that is on Peter and John's heart and soul to proclaim the unsearchable riches of Christ, they must obey God rather than men. Now, at this point in the Acts of the Apostles, there is no church as such. They're still worshiping in the temple. Uh, They haven't even left the temple yet. They're reading the same Bible, the Old Testament Scriptures. They were praying the same prayers that would have been taking place in the temple. It's questionable now whether they were attending uh, uh, sacrificial rituals. I I firmly believe that that is probably not the case now. Uh, 
But Peter and John and, and, and these 3,000 and 5,000, at this point in history, they are a Jesus movement within Judaism, just like the Sadducees were, just like the Pharisees were. All of that is about to change. There's going to be a, a, a radical dichotomy soon between the Christian church and, and the Jewish synagogue. But at this point, they are still within the contours of Judaism. No decisions have yet been made about the Sabbath or circumcision or the food loss. All of that is in the future. But there's one thing that separates them. There's one thing that stands out. It's the fact that they believe in one God. All Jews believed in one God. But they call that God Jesus. That's the difference. What is it that separates them from the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the rest of their fellow Jews? It's this one thing that they call Jesus God. This Jesus of Nazareth with whom they had spent three years, this Jesus of Nazareth that they had, that they had crucified, this Jesus of Nazareth that had raised, been raised from the dead, He's none other than the Lord God Almighty Himself. That's the difference. In a matter of weeks, in just a matter of weeks, the entire city of Jerusalem is being turned upside down because of that truth. It can turn this city upside down. That conviction, that boldness, that courage to speak in the name of Jesus, it can turn the entire city upside down. May God so grant it. May He give to each one of us that kind of courage. Father, we thank You. Thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the courage shown by Peter and John. And we, we pray, Lord, just grant us a little bit of it in this coming week in whatever circumstance that we may need it, for your glory, for the honor of the name of the Lord Jesus, we ask it. Amen.